Good evening, and welcome to the Film Club Podcast. You know, I'm gonna miss saying this. I mean, you've only ever really said it twice during our whole Hitchcock month. I know, I really dropped the ball, and this is the last episode of Hitchcock month, unfortunately. I mean, we're ending with the best, really. Uh, I'm still with Psycho being the best, but Rear Window is also a really good movie. Yeah, Rear Window stars Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly, it is this hypnotic story of L.B. Jeffries, this photojournalist that's now basically confined to his apartment with a broken leg that observes the strange goings-on with his Greenwich Village from his rear window and believes he sees a murder take place and then enlists the help of the beautiful, lovely, best Hitchcock blonde there was. Lisa. Lisa, played by Grace Kelly, uh, to help unravel the mystery. Sometimes you just gotta look out your own window and see what's going on in the world. I mean... Yeah, sometimes you find something kind of nice. Yeah, you know, the more you observe, the more things you see. I kind of had a situation like this with a past neighbor who I'm pretty sure was a, a killer or, you know, there's something shady going more on in the house. More likely you're just really paranoid. I don't know. Dude was very odd. Very paranoid? Nah, very odd. Very paranoid. But yeah, everyone, we're talking about Rear Window. This was, was this Hitchcock's first Paramount movie? You know, I'm not sure. I know that this one came before Psycho. Yeah. So, well, you know, Psycho was 1960. This was 54. This was 54. We had, you know, Vertigo in between this. Also, North by Northwest. And, uh, I mean, because this is, I feel where, like, a new era of Hitchcock kind of started. His, like, mm-hmm. Technicolor Paramount stuff he did in the mid-50s all the way through to Psycho. Yeah, and I mean, this well, movie... Well, the birds, but, yeah. The birds, too, yeah. But this movie just feels larger than life. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Psycho, we have more land and places that we go, and in this, we're just in an apartment the entire time. Yes. And you feel like you are standing in that apartment with Jimmy Stewart, just surveying the whole neighborhood basically well this feels like we are seeing hitchcock really stretching what he can do as a director because in this it's just the apartment like you said and we're following a character that you could say is kind of like not a a great character he's not like a hero figure you know he's a little he's a little bit of a creep he's not exactly the most um altruistic guy and It's also fascinating because it's such an enthralling little mystery. Everything seems to line up where Jeffries is just a crazy person. And it's like a really fascinating um, kind of of movie. And he gets that moment where it's like, Ha, I am not a crazy person. I proved you wrong. You should have listened to me from the beginning. You you really like it when uh, you get to say, Ha, you motherfuckers, you were all wrong. I am the true smart one. You love doing that. Oh, it, it... It sustains me. I know. But, uh, yeah. And I think this is just a fascinating look at what Hitchcock can really do. Because I think this is what people point to to say, oh, no, Hitchcock's a master director. Because we're a movie that takes place in basically one room. Yeah. And, like, what we can see out of the back window of said room. Yeah. And and the fact that, you know, when he was making this movie, directing this movie, he did everything from Jeffrey's apartment. He never went into any of the other apartments. He wanted to be like Jeffries, and this is my vantage point. How can I work with it? Yeah, and even within the tone of the movie, you really feel like this is another thing like Vertigo, like Psycho, where Hitchcock is commentating on his own voyeurism, Mm -hmm. his own desire to, like, look out and spy on people and, and get these, you know, different perspectives. And also, you can even view this film as an allegory for... Filmmaking. I know some film critic was talking about that, where um, Jeffries, Jimmy Stewart's character, is set up as the director, and he's looking out on this big grand set, and he's using his binoculars or his, like, you know, um, camera to literally be the camera, to direct the action, to craft this narrative. You have Mrs. Torso across the way, where she's this beautiful, talented woman, but will she ever find love, or is she just going to rope in... You know, the the one successful rich man that can, you know, provide for her for the rest of her life. Mrs. Lonelyheart, who is so just saddened to be all alone in her apartment. And you're like, is she going to kill herself? Will she find love? 
you know, and then you have uh, the musicians across the way, the newlywed couple. What this is, is Hitchcock telling five, six different and equally compelling little little narratives inside one movie where the main focus is just, oh, the guy across the way killed his wife. You know? And just so happened to get caught. Yeah, and even then, because I remember, I think the issue is I remembered, like, um, the movies that ripped off Rear Window, or, mm-hmm. like, the remakes, where, oh, you see the the murder. Yeah. Like, you see the, the husband kill the wife, and mm-hmm. it's very obviously up front. But in this, you don't actually see it. It's no. like a scream off screen, and that's it. And a glass breaking. And I think that's the thing that's so fascinating about this, is... If you don't really know the gist of Rear Window, you could think Jeffries is is lying. Like, it's yeah. a guy who just got a little stir-crazy and is trying to come up with something for the boredom. Yeah, and, you know, it it kind of goes with reality. Like, again, where I live. I live close to where a bar is. You know, I hear a lot of people screaming. You hear lots of random things, and you're thinking, oh my god, someone's being killed outside. And then... It was just this one isolated moment. It was probably a couple of drunks and, you know, horse playing out in the bar parking lot. Yeah, and, you know, that could be like this movie, where his friend is telling him, nothing happened, you're just bored out of your freaking mind, and you're trying to figure out something to do while you're stuck in this apartment. Let You want to talk about Jeffries for a second? Yeah, let's talk about Jeffries, played oh, by Jimmy Stewart. Played by the the great Jimmy Stewart. I was wondering <laughs> if we were going to get an impersonation today. Oh, you're gonna get a lot of that tonight. But um, so is Jimmy Stewart a good guy, or not Jimmy Stewart? Jeffries, because I think I mentioned that I don't think he's a very heroic character. Like he's kind of a creep. He's not. I obviously, mean, he's dumb because he is not jumping on that Grace Kelly. Like. Come on now. Yeah, that that was the hardest thing to watch in the movie, where it's just, she's so in love with him, and it's not like, like she's being a creep or anything about it, it's like, you she's know. She's being a little bit of a creep about it. Not too much. You're just saying she's not being a creep because she looks like Grace Kelly. I mean, Grace Kelly is one of the most beautiful women to have ever existed, but. Accurate, yes. But, you know, she's trying to say, you know. You know, if you can't change for me, I could change for you. I could live out of a suitcase. I just want to be with you. And I said, sorry, sweetheart. I don't think so. You know, you're just not doing it for me. But but, I'm like, bro, she'll do it for a blind man. Like, my God, look at this woman. But, you know, just seeing when Lisa puts herself into danger towards the climax of the movie. And obviously, what is Jeffrey's going to do with a broken leg in a wheelchair to to save her. Mm. But, you know, the best he could do is look away. And I'm just like, really? That is what you do? You know, throw something. You're not going to, you know, hit that window, but you're going to get somebody's attention. It's like, you know, help, be a hero. And he's clearly not that much of a hero. That's the, And I think that's the interesting thing about Jeffries, because on the front of it, he's supposed to be like... A, He's basically Indiana Jones. He's this globe-trotting, adventurous kind of guy. I love Granted, the way... played by Jimmy Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, but I love the way that his apartment is designed, mm-hmm. where you could tell that this is just the place that he comes and he drops his stuff off, cleans up, and then takes off for another assignment. Yeah. And you have all these great pictures on the wall of explosions and planes, and just seeing that he is, you know, very much like he just says, a boots-on-the-ground kind of guy. Where, you know, I'm living in the back of a Jeep, you know, I eat what I can, it's miserable work. And then, you know, you have this murder that's across the way, and your girl's in trouble, and let me cower away. But that's the thing, because I I know you're really hung up on the fact that Jeffries is this ineffectual heroic character. I'm not even... That hung up on him being ineffectual because yeah he has a broken leg he can't really do much mm-hmm. and he's and and all that but my thing is like at the core of him you know they're trying to make him look like this granted this is before Indiana Jones but this adventurous character yeah. this globe trying adventurer but when you get down to who he is as a person he's like you know this voyeuristic guy he's creeping on the neighbors he's one of these people that doesn't really seem to have any real direction in life even though he's in his 
Jimmy Stewart always is one of these guys that either looked 25 or 55. Yeah. It depends on the year. And we're looking at 55-year-old Jimmy Stewart here. Yeah, you know, he's very lost. Yeah. I mean, for, for being a guy that, you know, goes on assignments and goes to war-torn countries and puts himself into danger, basically, and has, you know, somebody that's interested and wants to settle down with him, mm-hmm. you know, he still kind of can't find his way out of a paper bag. Yeah, and then we have this whole thing going on where he is spying on his neighbors and he's trying to figure out this this crime, this mystery, but it really does feel like he's doing it out of almost selfishness. You know, the whole reason he's not taking no for an answer on the obvious bits of evidence that say this isn't true, this isn't happening, yada yada, and obviously because for the narrative, but also because he seems to be so like, I can't be wrong. Yeah. Like, I'm... I'm L.B. Jeffries. Mm-hmm. I'm the photojournalist extraordinaire. I'm Indiana fucking Jones. I can't be wrong. And also, my God, I'm so bored. Please, God, let something interesting happen in my dull day-to-day life yeah, where I it... sit here being fed lobster by Grace Kelly. Ooh, oh, how, rough. how boring is my life. But, yeah, you know, it's not till later in the movie where we see a shred of doubt in him that this isn't real. This isn't happening. But then it's wiped away very fast. Exactly. Because this is a Hitchcock movie and obviously somebody actually died. Yeah. It's just an interesting thing about this Jeffries character. Because Jimmy Stewart, I think his, I think if you look at his entire career, he's been pinned as the nice guy. Yeah. Like he's always like, oh, he's the all shucks hero. You know, this guy, you know, down on his luck, but he'll, he'll get there. You know, he'll win the day. But in all the Hitchcock movies I see him in, Rear Window, Vertigo. Vertigo like he is rope, rope. He, he's kind of creepy he's not like the most heroic person he's playing a, like a little bit against type like we come in with a preconceived notion of oh jimmy stewart he's the aw shucks hero he's gonna he's gonna win the day but really he's he's a more complicated character in the hitchcock films i see him in than in something like mr smith goes to washington yeah. or or it's a wonderful life which might be his best performance in it's a wonderful life maybe i mean it's not one of my my favorites really yeah i mean i i re- i really enjoy it's a wonderful life i, I saw for the first time like last christmas and it cha- it changed your life changed my life great movie yeah i mean it's a it's a really good film but it's just i don't know it's too much emotion i yeah i but that i guess that's my thing like going into this when you look at the jimmy stewart character right because he is a type he is a type right yeah do you think he fits into this roles as Jeffries? Or or is this like a Cary Grant role kind of thing? Uh, no, I'm not really getting Cary Grant. I could see this role as Jimmy Stewart mm-hmm. because he's just that versatile. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not getting too much creep from him in this movie. I'm getting just more obsessive compulsive. Mm. You know, it's like he's a photographer. He's very structured. This is how I do my work. I can't do my work. So now I just have to sit here for a month and wait, you know, for this to heal until I can get back up and go again. But I'm going to make this my job now. I heard this thing. I'm not going to sleep in my bed. I'm going to stay glued to this window and get every piece of information that I can. I think that's another interesting thing. He's a he's a photographer. His job is being a voyeur. His job yeah. is staring at people, watching people. Kind of blew your mind there a little bit. No, no, I was, just, I was, wait- I hit it to you. I was waiting for that bounce back. You know, like this is a this is a dialogue. You know, I hit the tennis ball of conversation you to just, you. You just had that look in your eye, like, oh, well, yeah, that, that's part of photography. Yeah, I, you're you're I, supposed to sit there and you you observe you you capture what you need to capture, and you know, he didn't you know see the crime happen, but he heard it, and mm. it's just like towards the end of the movie with the dog. Where that's the only time that collectively all the neighbors gather. It's also the only time we really break the immersion of the of the house, right? Mm-hmm. Because in that scene in particular, I because I, I love how um, Hitchcock composes uh, images in the mm-hmm. in this movie. Because throughout the whole movie, we're looking out his back window. But when the dog dies, we're cutting to weird angles, like close-ups of the neighbors and things like that. Where now it looks like we're sitting in the middle of the courtyard. Yeah. Like we're from like the dog's perspective now. Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating he does it there. Yeah. And I'm wondering why we cut there in particular. 
like why why is he why does he decide to put us in the middle of the courtyard in that scene as opposed to any other time in the movie? I don't know. I thought it was weird when it happened, but it, it it's one of those filmmaking things. You're like, ah, oh, fucking no, it's neato. Yeah, I mean, it it could have just been you know we're we're starting to get to the climax. Let's really kind of all right. We're gonna expand. We're not gonna just be in this room anymore. Mm-hmm. We're going to start to follow, like, Lisa when they go down there to dig up the flower bed. Mm. So it's like we're expanding the world a little bit more than what Jeff can, you know, walk into. Yeah. Also, um, why do they got to kill the dog? Why yeah. why you got to kill the dog? Yeah, that was heartbreaking. And again, you know, that's a long shot for, you know, oh, the dog saw too much. Really? Who's going to believe that the dog saw too much? Who's going to, yeah, why are you going to kill the fucking dog? Like, mm-hmm. you, whatever. It, it's a, it's an interesting mystery. Um, But we've, we've uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Mr. Jeffries. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the uh, the Hitchcock blonde, the, the one that everyone has unanimously agreed on is the best Hitchcock blonde? Every, every poll I've ever seen of people talking about the Hitchcock blondes, they point to, to Miss... Grace Kelly. Even Hitchcock was like, she is the best Hitchcock blonde. So they're like, Janet Lee, close second, but he killed her, so you can't work with her again. That's that's a Hitchcock rule. Mm. Once he kills an actor off, you're done. You don't come back. Is that really a Hitchcock rule? Yeah, because Kim Novak wanted to work with Hitchcock again, but she dies in Vertigo. So he's like, I'm sorry, sweetheart. I don't work with the people that die in my movies. Was that actually him, him saying that? That's fascinating. I don't God, I'd, I'd have to watch a lot more Hitchcock movies to, to say that, but because I don't know how many times he reworked with actors. I know he worked with Jimmy Stewart a couple of times, and I think he worked with Cary Grant a few times. Yeah, I think he worked with Jimmy Stewart four times. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Stewart said in interviews that this is his favorite film that he's done with Hitchcock. It's the best one. I mean, because it feels like, you know, his character in this movie and Vertigo are kind of similar, where, you know, they're observant, they're trying to figure out what's going on they're a little creepy but they're not gross they're they're a little off but they're not insane yeah they they both take on this investigative kind of role you know i'm the one that is seeing this i need to figure this out and it's kind of interesting to see that out of the two this is his favorite versus vertigo where it's just a more expansive world it's it's a more complex film that that's the biggest argument with when people say, oh, you know, Vertigo is the greatest Hitchcock movie versus Rear Window. Mm-hmm. Rear, like, Vertigo is a really complicated movie if you try and lay it out. Um, because it's this movie about double crosses. It's this movie about, like, like dual identities. And there's this mystery going through it. But that mystery is pseudo-solved, then re-brought up, then solved again. But Rear Window is is straight to the point. It's very simple. All it's about is trying to solve this one singular murder that seemingly never happened. And it's not this movie that travels all across San Francisco. It's not this movie that travels all across the the nation like in North by Northwest. It's a movie that takes place basically even more simply than Psycho. Like this is in a guy's apartment in the courtyard behind his house. And that's why I thought, you know, he might have picked Vertigo or something else because... That's hard just to be confined to one room for the entire shooting of this movie and the courtyard. Yeah. And he doesn't even get into the courtyard until the very end of the movie. And it's like a shot. Also in a badly composited shot right before that. Yeah, yeah. 1954 special effects, baby. They tried. They They, tried. Yes. Weren't we talking about Grace Kelly a second ago? We were. That, but, exactly. Oh, we, yeah, that's because we were talking about the Hitchcock Blondes. Yes, and how she is the... The ultimate. Yes. She is the Holy Grail. Because, I mean, the stereotype of the Hitchcock Blondes comes from this 50s run of Hitchcock, right? Mm-hmm. Rear Window, North by Northwest, mm-hmm. um, Psycho, The Birds, Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Those movies are really where we get this stereotype of Hitchcock loves these these kind of ethereal, beautiful, blonde women. Smart women. Yeah, women who who outsmart the the leading man in almost every one of the movies, mm-hmm. or who are, you know, more they're for the most part they're more complicated. Yeah. And um why do you think Grace Kelly 
kind of stands head and shoulders in this, like, canon of actresses. Because she just has that air about her, and it's, you know, you don't get any condescension from it. It's just, she is this beautiful woman, but you could also tell that there is a kindness there. And I think that's, you know, why they had such a good friendship, because she was authentic, she was herself, and, you know, you get that from her. And you get that with Lisa's character, where, you know, he's trying to tell her, you have this city in the palm of your hand, what do you really need me for? And it's just, you know, it's like, I have all of that, but I'm willing to give it all up for you, because that's what my heart wants. And he just can't wrap his head around that. And I think that's why I feel so much for Lisa in this movie, because she is just trying to be part of his world, even though he tells, uh, what is it, like his in-home care worker that helps him? Um, oh, I, I have her name right here. It's is one that of... Ritter? Um, Ritter? Thelma Ritter. Oh, yes, the actress's name. Sorry, for some reason, I was like, the, the character's not, the character's like Stella or something. Yeah, no, I couldn't remember her name, but I remember her last name. Uh, Stella who is kind of like the angel on his shoulder that's telling him, you know, you need to settle down. You need to do, you know. Sleep. She's like, honey, I've been married for 20 years. You don't even know what you're missing. You know, even the basics of, you know, why don't you sleep in your bed instead of sleeping in your chair? You know, these basic things that she's trying to help this man. And he's just, you know, She'll never accept me because I'm living paycheck to paycheck. And you've got Lisa telling you, I don't care, you know, what your your life story is. I want to be with you. I, I want to talk about their relationship for yeah. a second. Because that's an interesting thing. Because I think Jeffrey is thinking altruistically about it. He's mm -hmm. like, I don't want to put this beautiful woman who's this you know, member of the, the aristocracy, mm -hmm. basically, of like New York City. Like, yeah. she's rich, she's fabulous, she's like a fashion designer, model, person. Mm -hmm. Whatever she does, she looks like Grace Kelly, so she's doing it well. Yeah. And he's like, I don't want to put her through that kind of a hard life. If she wants to be with me, that's going to be too much for her. And she's on the other side, and I wonder if for Jeffries, he's thinking, oh, she's just naive. She doesn't really understand what I'm talking about. He's thinking more analytically where, you know... I don't have the money to buy her these dresses that she likes. I don't have the money to give her these grandiose dinners that she loves and cocktails. To, to pamper her, basically. Yeah. And you have her on the flip side where if this is an issue and you're kind of feeling inadequate about, you know, I have to leave the country and be in dangerous con uh, conditions when I do my photo shoots, you know, with your catalog, you could open up your own studio or hey, I'm in the fashion district, so I can get you in with some of these big companies. You could work for Harper's Bazaar. And he's just, no, no, that that's logical, but that's not me. <laughs> it, it's, it's just an interesting thing, because I'm trying to figure how these two, how these two on paper are so incompatible, but the performances of the actors make them, make it work. Because, because you know. It's going off the whole opposites attract. Mm. You know, it's, you can tell that there is love there. It's not, you know, kind of like a weird pairing where it's like, oh, they're supposed to be romantically involved, but you could tell that there's just no chemistry there. It It is almost like um, it, when when uh, Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak were in Vertigo and we had the huge hurdle having to cross mm -hmm. where they look like, or no, him and Midge. Midge, yeah. Yes. When it was like Midge and Jimmy Stewart were supposed to be romantically involved mm -hmm. together in Vertigo. And we had to cross that huge boundary of what is the context of this relationship? Yeah. Like, he is so much older than her. She yeah, is... Yeah, they went to college together. Yeah. And she seems so, like, in another world than he is. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't really see this as a romantic thing. And then even when... Um, Scotty, Jimmy Stewart's character in Vertigo, falls in, falls for Kim Novak's character. You're even like, this is such a weird mixture. He's not really like rom in a romantic in love with her. He's more in like an obsession with her. Mm -hmm. And in this, it's a lot more of like a loving feeling. It's really fascinating. Yeah, and you have the two of them, well, it's mostly him, you know, bickering at her. Because she's just really trying to, you know, lobster dinner. And I'm here, and I was thinking about you, and... Oh, you think, you know, your neighbor killed somebody? Well, I want in on this little investigation, more or less so I could just spend more time with you. But they seem, you know, when they have their affectionate scenes together, 
they seem like a happy romantic couple. Mm-hmm. It's not fake. It doesn't feel like, ooh, that must have been a rough day for them to kind of, you know, just sit there and make out with each other. Like I uh, don't think it'd be very rough to sit there and make out with Grace Kelly. I don't think probably, that'd be a rough order. Probably not, but it also shows the skill of these actors. Just like kicking it back to Psycho with uh, Janet Lee and John Gavin, who plays Sam Loomis. Yes, yeah. That first scene when we see them in the bed, that was actually the first day of shooting for the movie. And they had, really? They had just met. And she was telling, you know, Hitch, hey, you know what? This is kind of awkward to get into bed with this guy that I've just barely met mm. and, you know, come across as a romantic couple. And he was just like, you know, like, don't think it, you know, get yourself a little bit comfortable and you do what you need to do. And it's flawless. They come across that they have been in this, you know, torrid relationship for who knows how long. I mean, just looking at them as, like, actors, I would have thought that was, like, oh, that's a little bit into filming. Like, they probably, like, knew each other, or they probably, like, rehearsed a little bit. But That was day one. As a day one performance, that's a really good portrayal of a romantic relationship on a day one performance. Yeah, and, you know, it kind of feels the same way with this movie. When they get into the initial fight where he's, like, trying to let her go, basically, and she gets upset and she's leaving... And she's telling him, you know, I'm done. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And he's like, well, are you sure? Like, not anymore? Do you know if there's a day? And she's like, until tomorrow night. <laughs> and then they cut to tomorrow night and the two of them are kissing like nothing happened. I think that that's the thing about this movie that really works so well. And, and I think makes it a more of a compelling story than, oh, it's this guy and he's solving the, the mystery across the way. And I think that's something that's missing from... um other movies that use the same premise or other uh, pieces of media that use the same premise. Is this really like nice and interesting, like ro- romance going on? Cause both of them are so different from each other, but you kind you want to see them end up together. Yeah. Cause it's a movie, right? You want to see the couple get married and have babies and have fun. Right. And the fact that, that his biggest gripe is that she's too perfect. You know, here she comes with the lobster dinner or uh, these beautiful clothes. And it's just like, Oh, could this woman be any more perfect? I hate her. I mean, I have a question. Is she perfect? Mm. She looks like Grace Kelly. She brings you lobster dinner when you're not feeling well. Angel chicken soup. Lobster dinner. Also with the busboy, too, who brought it for her. She's perfect. She's perfect. But in the best kind of way. Yes. But it's not until later in the movie when she's really getting into this investigative work with Jeffrey's. And she's, you know, hopping over fences and she's digging and she's climbing up the... The, the fire escape fire, and the fire sliding sc- into the the window. And you're like, oh my god, is she gonna fall? Like, she's in fucking four-inch heels. And what you the see, fuck? you know, this genuine smile on his face like, wow, she's awesome. And it's like, yes, and you're ready to throw her away because you think she's kind of, you know, this doll that wants new dresses. And I gotta look pretty and perfect and I gotta go get fancy drinks. And it's like... No, you're not giving her the benefit of the doubt. Well, I'm not even no benefit of the doubt. I wonder if that's another intentional um, thematic thing that Hitchcock's working with is men's tendency to see women as, you know, porcelain dolls and mm-hmm. not as, um, like, like people, you know? Yeah. And, and I know people have talked about this movie as being very representative of, like, the male gaze, you mm-hmm. know, where we are seeing this world through jeffrey's eyes and it's very um man-centric you know mrs torso he's he's, you know ogling the the hot blonde across the way and he's kind of ignoring the the musician over there he's not doing anything but he's really interested in this nice newly married couple that has their shades drawn i wonder what's going on in there but even you know the traditional stuff where he's carrying her over the threshold and the two of them making out and he's kind of like like, oh, another set of, you know, saps that fell for it. And, you know, you've got the husband that comes out to the window just to smoke. And, you know, honey, I need you for this and that. <sighs> like, she's calling me again. And he's just loving it because he's like, ha, those married people. I knew it. And he's like, they're suckers. But even when Jeffrey's friend who is uh, an investigator or... Yeah, yeah, officer, Doyle. Doyle. He's a, he's a detective. You know, he tells him what's going on. And he sees Miss Torso across the way. And he's like, how can you be focused on this married couple that, you know, potentially the wife is dead when you've got her, you know, dancing around, being beautiful, being in her bra, 
And it's just like, yeah, you could see where that's where the male mind is trying to go in this movie. You know, ooh, pretty girl. I got to look at her. I got to ogle her. Exactly. And also, I'm like, yeah, I understand you have Miss Torso across the way. But Grace Kelly is literally right in the kitchen making you lo- like again that's the one leap of logic where i can't cross even when like, she brings if, I, the- if i had a grace kelly in my kitchen i the wind blinds are drawn it is it is over there's no movie there's no movie but you know you see doyle where he figures out that you know grace kelly's in the kitchen making you know warm brandies and he's sitting there after he gets his brandy and he's got this big smile like that's right you know pretty girl you know gave me some booze to drink this is the life this is how it should be and it's just like dude, she's more on the ball with this investigation than you are. Because you're just, nothing's happening. You're overthinking it. Give up. And I think that's a really interesting thing about Rear Window is the fact that it it is fully aware that it is doing the male gaze, that it is doing observation of the world through this era of sex and violence. That's Mm -hmm. very, you know... I think that's a thing that a lot of people just attribute to men are obsessed with sex and violence. Mm-hmm. And that's what this movie's obsessed with. Yeah. And then you have Lisa over here, Grace Kelly's character, who is like so like above all of that shit. Mm-hmm. Like she's a gorgeous woman that totally doesn't care that she's gorgeous. Yeah. She's like this woman who should be so above above this like the like the like um the violence of the world or whatever and she's like no let's get down and dirty you know let's fucking grit this out and it's a fascinating just character yeah i really like them i really like it me too and she's very much you know okay your friend doyle who could have some pull and possibly get into this apartment is not doing it you know what i'm gonna climb up i might put myself in jeopardy but i'm gonna go on there and i'm gonna see what i can find and she does it and yeah it is a heart pounding scene uh, but, um, what, where else do we want to go here? Uh, oh, what is your favorite scene? You know, you have the heart-pounding scene where Lisa's, you know, sneaking into the apartment. What's your favorite scene in the movie? My favorite scene in the movie is probably gonna catch you off guard because it's probably not what you think I would choose. Uh, okay. It's actually our first appearance of grace kelly lisa in the movie when she shows up and she's in that black and white dress mm-hmm. with like the flowy overcoat that that's and she starts turning on the lights and she's like from top to bottom lisa caroline freeman and she turns on all the lights yeah and you know it's the amazing costume designed by edith head she worked with hitch on uh, vertigo she did like the whole thing for madeline and that you know traditional mm-hmm. gray suit that we have she did like all the paramount movies for him, oh right? yeah i mean she was just a phenomenally talented woman but it's just that reveal of her where it's just she just suddenly appears and that costume is just so iconic it's been shot and it's just partially a reason why i wanted to get into portrait photography because it's just so striking mm-hmm. and for me it, it's always stuck in the back of my head where you know that's just sheer perfection on the screen and i mean yeah of course I, I love the rest of the movie and there's so much you know to see and there's so much happening but i think it's just the subtlety of that scene that you know makes me think of this movie i i really like that because that is it, it's basically when the movie really gets started is and like that's the first moment of real conflict of real interest of us really seeing anything of substance for jeffries outside of his you know little world is when lisa shows up for the first time and also you immediately fall in love with her yeah when she starts doing you know oh i'm turning on the lights Mm -hmm. and i'm and i'm walking around and she's doing that dialogue with um with jeffries and it's it's a great scene that's a good scene yeah i mean she also kind of breathes life into the apartment Mm-hmm. Because with Jeffries, we see him and he's in his PJs and he's sweating and the, the apartment's dark and, you know, it's this kind of sad looking place and her slowly turning the lights on and bringing food in. You're like, just in seconds, she's able to turn that small apartment into a home, a, a comfy, cozy place. Oh, yeah. And it sees, and it shows like, yeah, Jeffries, you might resist this woman, but this woman brings stability to this guy's mm-hmm. life that is for the most part, very unstable. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, that's a really good scene. Yeah. What's your favorite scene in the movie? Oh, I'm piss easy. It's, it's everyone's favorite scene. It's the opening. Mm-hmm. It's that opening shot where we, where we go 
in through the we're out through the window and we go across the courtyard and we come back into the apartment and we go over Jamie Stewart and it lays out everything we need to know about his character about this world about mm-hmm. this environment without a single line of dialogue with the overlay of Franz Waxman's score in this movie great score and it's only used in the beginning and ending right yeah and Franz Waxman as you might know is the uh Artist that did the work for the Bride of Frankenstein. Yes. Oh God, that's we're we're taking we're we're, a, we're, uh, we're going back a few months. Yeah, a couple of months, but you know we're also seeing you know it wasn't all Bernard Herman with you know Hitchcock. You know he mm-hmm. kind of worked with different people. Yeah, he just he worked with Bernard Herman like a few times, but it's like the times he worked with Bernard Herman were that were oh the one that everyone thinks is the best movie ever made mm-hmm. and the most popular Hitchcock movie ever made and the sound that you think of when you think of Hitchcock yeah uh, I mean th- I really do love the score in this and that opening sequence I love so much because like everything about Jeffries is laid out and mm-hmm. also the environment like we understand it's hot because like oh the sweat on his brow the thermostat it, we understand that it's a new york summer it's supposed to feel hot and uncomfortable hot stuffy claiming we understand he's this photographer that travels around the world because we see all the pictures on the walls we see oh exactly how we got injured because we see the car exploding and coming out and it's like well that's obviously how he broke his leg and like all the stuff around his apartment i think it's a fascinating way to do it in such an economical and genius way and it's also a, a diegetic movie oh yeah uh diegetic means everything heard in the movie comes from the movie so all the music you hear is, is from... from within the film it's not like um a regular score that's not diegetic music yeah you know and i think that's so genius and it makes you really feel like you're in that apartment with them because well, why is there music? Oh, well, we have this composer across the way that's trying to figure out his next big hit to get him signed or to get this piece bought. Mm-hmm. And you've got, you know, the dancer, who's Miss Torso, who's, oh, well, you know, I got to practice and I've got, you know, free music up the way. Let me do that. And you just have the regular sounds of the neighborhood going on. And everybody's little, everybody's also listening to the radio. Miss Lonely Heart listens to some, like, sad melancholy music when she's feeling down and she's all alone in her apartment and it's it's just such a fascinating world that's built on this set because it it is obviously a set but it feels so real even though you know how artificial it is like they build this whole environment that you just get lost in well i mean what's kind of interesting about this set because I mean, I, f- I feel like if you were to go and stand there, you'd feel like you're in the, the courtyard of... Some ap- some New York um, village a- apartment building. A- apartment complex. But what was interesting was they had running electricity and water in those apartments. So they wanted them to feel as real as possible that you could you know physically live there if you wanted to. And hmm. I think that just adds to that experience of, yeah, this is that person's home. You know, we're seeing in, but... You know, they could be, you know, real people. Well, that's the thing that a lot of a lot of actors do when they go into, like, sets or environments or anything like that. Um, One of the first things most actors do on a movie set is they'll walk in and they'll just start touching shit. Yeah. Because they want to figure out, it's like, okay, does this, does this door lead anywhere? Mm-hmm. Okay, does this sink actually do anything? Are these cupboards full of anything? Because they want to know how much they have to like fake but how much they have to like act like how much do i do i have to act like this whole environment around me is a full three-dimensional real thing or is it already a full three-dimensional real thing and i don't have to worry about my environment Mm -hmm. and i just have to worry about like my internally my internal self yeah and i think that's a genius thing you know because let's be honest here you don't need to really furnish most of these apartments you Mm -hmm. don't really need running water or electricity or anything like that to most of these apartments but doing that allows the actors so much to allows the actors to work so much easier because oh the apartment's real i am this person everything around me is real so now it's easier for me to get to that place of this person yeah and being told you know you do what your character does you know go ahead do it and it's just okay well i could just pretend to be myself while actually doing real things. It's not, you know, me mimicking something or, you know, pantomiming so the camera catches me. It's like, 
no, you know, like Miss Torso, I'll actually dance and practice and this is what I do. And it works because, you know, she's actually dancing. She's actually doing what she does. And she doesn't look like a lot of actors you would, you see who aren't actual dancers mm-hmm. and everything looks a little, like, tight or awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, she's, like, a real dancer. And this is just a really great movie at building a ecosystem. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, um, like, a movie, like, a lot of movies like this are called bottle movies, movies that take place in one location. Mm-hmm. And this movie takes place in one location. But the key to a good bottle movie is making that location feel real. So you don't sit there and and call bullshit. Yeah. You know, um, God, what was it? I think it was Saw 5 or 6? Fuck, I don't remember. There's there's like nine Saw movies now. Yeah. But um, I'm one of those people who who watched every Saw movie because mm-hmm. that was like the franchise that came up with me as I was going into horror adulthood. Uh-huh. Um, but... I think it was like the sixth or seventh movie where people wake up and then this giant warehouse complex and it's like, and it's all takes place in that warehouse complex. So they're trying to escape, right? Well, yeah, it's like three out of the seven of these fucking movies. But I'm, you watch that and you're like, well, that's kind of fucking bullshit. Like you can't construct this. Like this isn't, this doesn't make sense. Like the first one's like, okay, you're in an abandoned bathroom facility at the bottom of a warehouse. Okay, I can see that. Even the second one. Okay, you're in like a rundown house somewhere. Okay, maybe. But then it's like, bro, I don't know how you were able to haul a 350 pound fucking guillotine into this room for one trap. Like, what? what is this? Yeah. And those ring like false. Like, that doesn't make sense because that environment doesn't function under like any logic. This, it's, like, it's so well-constructed, you forget it's a set. Yeah, it's kind of like um, the movie Disturbia. Yes. Where... Which steals from this. Yes, very much so. But uh, we go to a couple of different locations in the movie, because this is a more modern movie that's pulling off of this movie. But for the main character who is under house arrest, his world is the confinement of his house. So seeing your neighbor that committed a murder, you got to run through different windows. You got to see where you can, you know, get as close as you possibly can. And you kind of get that with this movie where he could kind of, you know, look out the window a little bit if he tries really hard. But that's it. I Did you like Disturbia? Oh, I love Disturbia. Okay, because I really liked that movie um, when it like came out. Because that was... And when did that all- movie come out? I it was because like, that was it, like when Shia LaBeouf was like becoming a a like more mainstream actor after the Disney stuff, but I it was before he, he like had that fucking breakdown, right? I think this was around the same time as Transformers, so I'm guessing maybe two thousand eight, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, or maybe. But yeah, I really love Disturbia. That's also actually a filming location that's fairly close to us yeah it is not very far from where we are and but, it, um, it's fun to visit and see it you know in all its glory and like wow you know that they didn't really change anything yeah and the thing is is with that movie because that movie got into some trouble because they were like oh it's just doing rear window again yeah and they had to explain that it's just using kind of the basic idea of this guy is trapped in his house and see something across the way. But they play out completely differently. Yeah. But it's just kind of interesting because we talked about in Psycho how Psycho was remade in the 90s, mm-hmm. right? And then they kind of remade it again with the Bates Motel TV yeah. series. And each time you really saw that they couldn't recapture that they really Mm -hmm. couldn't recapture that magic of 1960s alfred hitchcock psycho like the remake didn't work like nothing felt right even though it was like close to a shot for shot remake yeah the tv show i know people love that show the show's really good um it feels like they're close but it's, they're not quite there, but that feels like the most... Well, you also got to think about it. It took them 30 hours of content to do what Hitchcock did in like 90 minutes. Oh, yeah. And then it's like, well, you can't, it's hard to fucking compare them at that point. But with this, it's like, okay, 
the concept of Rear Window has been parodied and redone, mm-hmm. and they remade this in the 90s with, like, Christopher Reeves as um, L.B. Jeffries, and then they did this again, like, just the premise in Disturbia with Shia LaBeouf. And it's like, this concept works outside of the Hitchcock magic, but is this the best use of that concept? Is that is this Hitchcock rear window, the I guess, the best rear window? Yes. Yes, be- yeah, better I'm, than Disturbia, better than all the parodies, better, better than, than all, du- the, all the other ones. Better than Disturbia, but I still love Disturbia a lot. I think it's. I think that's just like a good, fun movie. Yeah. You know, out of out of anything, like I, I can still put on Disturbia and enjoy it. Yeah, there's a lot of action. There is a blonde love interest in the movie, so it's like you see the parallels of that movie and this movie, but it's also trying not to be Rear Window, versus you know Psycho and Bates Motel. It is the same characters. We're just seeing it with a modern twist. Yeah. And they were able to make it work. You know, they rebuilt the house. They rebuilt the motel. And it's like, yeah, you have, you know, set design. You got it down. It it works, but it's not perfect like the movie. Yeah. And, I mean, we can go on and on about the attempts to recapture Hitchcock magic. And, I mean, you we can argue that Hitchcock made the first James Bond movie with North by Northwest. Yeah. And you were able to recapture that. Like, there's a 50-something years of James Bond movies that are just recapturing the North by Northwest magic over I believe, and over again. I believe we're still waiting for our next Bond, right? I think so. I don't know if they've... I don't know if they've officially cast a new actor to pick up after Daniel Craig. I know they're still talking about that, but I haven't watched 90% of the James Bond movies. I'll be real with you. Oh, no, I, I love James Bond movies. I haven't seen all of them. Well, there's so fucking many. Yeah, there's a lot. So I have never felt that need to, I gotta watch them all. It's like, you know, I'm gonna take my time, watch one, you know, here. I'll watch another one down the line. Mm-hmm. This way, I don't run out of them. Just keep it going at a slow pace. You, you could probably watch one a month and you wouldn't catch up in two years. Maybe. But, whatever. But that's, I think that's an interesting thing as we've been talking this month about Hitchcock is... What makes Hitchcock so unique? And I think in Rear Window, we see how unique he is Mm -hmm. as a director. He's able to take these very simple concepts and wring all the suspense out of them. He's able to take these very tight, seemingly mundane locations, a man's apartment and a courtyard, and make them the most compelling place to, like, view drama. Yeah, you don't ever feel like, I need to get out of this room. I want to be in this room because I want to see what is happening across the way. And I think that leads us into, we got to talk about who's living across the way. Oh, yes. Uh, Raymond Burr in the worst wig in Hitchcock's canon. <sighs> you, I love the fact that everything in this movie is fucking perfect. The sound design, the set design, the acting, the, the, the camera work, the color, the lighting. But they couldn't get anything better than a dollar 95 gray wig for raymond burr oh my god i was okay with the hair it was more the hat that was kind of like the hat that's a size and a half too small for his head that and also a white hat i'm like bro that thing is gonna get so dirty so fast oh come on look there's there's a lot of things but um yeah ray raymond burr he's the killer across the way uh, he's playing Lars Thorwald, and his wife is Anna Thorwald, right? Mm-hmm. And what are your, what, I guess, what are your thoughts on him in the movie? Comes across creepy. Mm. He just got that vibe about him, and he's also kind of big in stature. So it's like I could believe that, you know, we don't know how exactly the wife dies, but hearing the scream and the breaking of the glass, I could believe that he could probably choke her out. And that was it. Well, we know she gets chopped up. And yes. that, I think that's another thing. Hitchcock has this really weird um, weird sense of humor, mm-hmm. you know? And also kind of like a, a sick, you know, disposition where he's like, oh, yes, he chopped her up and, you know, saws and knives and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to show you it. I'll let your imagination do all the work, exactly. though. But, oh, it was bloody as hell, I swear to God, guys. Don't, don't ask me to show it to you, though. That's why he's the master of suspense. I don't have to do it. I just have to give you the idea. And I'll let you put those pieces together. 
I think that's the genius of Hitchcock. And the genius of, like, Raymond Burr's character mm-hmm. is we don't really know how dangerous he is. Honestly, we don't even know how big he is. Because he's always so, like, isolated. Like, mm-hmm. is he just, like, this short, frumpy dude? Is he this giant, hulking mess? We don't even know until... We get, like, a comparison when Lisa's in the apartment. Because we yeah. know how big Lisa is. And then this guy towers over her. Yeah. And then when he's in Jeffrey's apartment and we're like, a fucking gorilla has entered the room. It's over, Jimmy Stewart. It's done. I mean, especially when, you know, you've seen Jimmy Stewart and you know that he is this tall, lanky guy. And it's like... The, the scenes where you see Jimmy Stewart with his shirt off. You're like, you're like a couple of push-ups, man couple of come on you gotta tighten up a little bit come on bro three meals a day maybe some protein powder something something a couple work out a little bit jeffries work out just just a little bit you're not you're not turning heads at the gym man i'm sorry yeah but i mean just you know that this man that we don't know too much about is dangerous yeah he gives off these vibes just watching him across the courtyard you know there's something not quite right with him yeah, and it's very interesting because he's doing a silent performance. Mm-hmm. He's observed, honestly, the entire film. And he is, I don't think he has a single line until the end of the movie. No, he talks throughout the movie. Does he? We have him when he's tending to his garden and the neighbor that lives on the ground floor. Oh, she, yeah, you're right, you're right. She, you know, leans over and tells him, you know, hey, you know, you're you're watering, overwatering your plants. And he's, you know, shut up and, you know, leave me alone and... You get, like, those little remarks from him. You see him on the phone and his wife trying to get his attention. And, you know, again, it's, you know, shut up. You know, let me do this. It's not till he gets to the apartment where he's, you know, talk to me. You know, say something to me. Because he's just so close to losing it. And, and I think that's the thing. Yeah, he does say these, you know, he's he is saying these little quips. You know, these, these things, you know, that reveal that he's kind of short-tempered. He's kind of a jerk. But when we're observing him through Jeffrey's window, you know, yeah, we're seeing him talk. We can't really hear him. And he's doing so much with his body. Mm-hmm. And when he's cleaning the apartment, how his expression just looks so... Um, deadpan. Deadpan. And it's fascinating to see this guy is cleaning up the, the death of his wife, right? Yeah. And he looks so, like, both exhausted, but not really disturbed by it. He no. seems so detached from the situation. It's kind of fascinating to see that performance out of somebody. We especially in a movie like this. We don't get true emotion out of him until he gets the letter. Yes. Until he's scared. Until he, and he reads that, you know, I know what you did. Or, does it say, I know what you did? Or, you know, where is she? Where's your wife? And you get that, you know, just like he's gone pale. Just like, oh my god, how do they know? This whole time, you know, I've gotten rid of things slowly. I, you know, I've been cleaning. How would they know? I think it's just a thing where he is doing so well with so little. Because, mm-hmm. like, really think about it. He's not playing against anyone, no. really. Like, his wife is out of the picture, like, fucking 20 minutes into the movie, 30 minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. And then it's just him cleaning his apartment. Or, or him, like, slipping in and out of his apartment carrying, like, like uh, briefcases. And then we are building up what's in the briefcase. Mm-hmm. Oh, this guy's a fucking monster. Yeah. Oh, he's... He, is this his first wife? He's probably killed, like, six wives before this. And we get into the mood of Jeffrey's where we are, in his perspective, what's in there? I need to know. Yeah. Of course he killed somebody. You heard the, you heard the scream. You heard the glass break. There's no way he didn't kill somebody. I'm not paranoid. Obviously he did it. And that's the genius of the movie. It makes you and Jeffries the same psyche, right? Yeah. Trying to solve this mystery. I mean, another one of my favorite parts of this movie is all the times that Jeffries is watching Lars across the way and the apartment's pitch black and you just see that cigarette oh, slowly yeah. light up. And then... that, that cigar just... <sighs> and you see it illuminate in there. It's like, oh, it's so good. It's like he's, you know, shining a signal at Jeffrey across the way, like, I'm right here. I know you're you're, watching. I'm within, you know, arm's reach, but you're never going to get me. (sighs) It's a good movie. It's a fun movie. But, uh, any any other thoughts on Rear Window? (sighs) I mean, overall great film. um, I say Hitchcock's best. It's close, but for me, I'm sticking with Psycho. 
But uh, yeah, it, it just it keeps you thinking the entire time. And I, I love movies where you're chasing the trail and you're like, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. But am I really right about this? And that's where we end up, you know, in the climax where Lars has figured it out. He calls Jeffrey's apartment. He figures out you're the one that made the phone call to me earlier. You get the lights turn off in the hallway and it's just him scrambling in his apartment. How am I going to protect myself when I can't even lock my own door? How am I going to defeat this gorilla coming for me? Which, you know, I, I think is brilliant that he uses his uh, his flashbulbs to kind of stop him in his tracks. Well, that's the genius, you know. Oh, he's coming at you and Jeffrey's now shining a light on this man's, you know, atrocities. He's like... Look, I found you out. Look, haha, now you're being illuminated. Now now everyone's going to know what you did. It's another symbolic gesture in the movie. Yeah, and or it, I'm full of shit. Either one is fine. It's symbolic, but it's also him using his professional skills with, you know, hey, I know that this flash is so strong that's going to stop him in his tracks. I've worked with strobe lights. You look into one of those, you're seeing spots for about an hour. But then, you know, it's like, okay, you're getting him to stop briefly for a few minutes. Well, what are you going to do when you run out of flashbulbs and you're still stuck in your chair? He's buying time. He knows Doyle's on his way with his goons. Yeah, and then we get him being, you know, thrown out the window as Doyle's trying to make his way across one courtyard into his building. Well, Doyle, Doyle wasn't fast. His goons were slowing him down. <laughs> but oh. I mean, it, it's a really good climax and leading up to the fight and just how he rolls over so fast. Jeffries falls to the ground and right away, you know, oh, do you have him? Yeah, and he admitted the whole thing. The body's over here. And it's just like, wow, what happened in those like five minutes? He was like, ah, well, I'm found out. That goddamn crippled survived the fall. Well, I'm fucked. Well, ah, yeah, yeah, I did it. Cops, you don't know about this dog across the way, but I killed him too. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so that that's Rear Window. Great movie. Great Love movie. the movie. Iconic movie. I call it Hitchcock's best. It's my favorite. Um, but yeah, two big thumbs up. Same here. It's one of my favorites, not my favorite, all-time favorite Hitchcock movie. But if you haven't seen it, give it a watch. But next week. Next week is going to be a little different. We're ending Hitchcock month with Rear Window. And we're going to do something that we did for the first time last year at the podcast. Yes, we are going to be doing our year in review. We're going to talk about, I guess, our favorite episodes we recorded this year, the favorite movies we watched this year, and some of the worst movies we watched this year. And some of the fun things that we've done for the podcast, events that we've gone to. It's going to be a really fun episode. Um, if you want to ask us questions, and maybe we'll answer some questions during our year in review, send us some questions on Instagram. Yes, and you can also comment on the bottom of this video on our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube. But there's also going to be something else on the YouTube channel, on the feed. A little bonus episode, maybe? That's right. Since it's the holiday season, we're just days away from Christmas. We're going to give you guys a gift. We're doing a bonus episode. And it's not a Hitchcock movie. It's something that we kind of wanted to do completely random. Something that we thought could only be done if we got some guests on, because we we needed more power to contain this monster of an episode. Yeah, because we know movies, but we're not masters of all crafts of, you know, films. So we had to bring in two people to help us discover Godzilla. But which Godzilla? Uh, 1998, directed by Roland Emmerich, starring Matthew Broderick, considered one of the worst Godzilla films ever made. Also considered one of the worst summer blockbusters ever produced. The movie's so bad, Toho ripped the rights away from Paramount Pictures for 15 years before they made a, make another Godzilla movie. That's right. We're yes. doing a crappy Godzilla movie. How could we not... It's one from the millennial generation. I remember seeing this in the theater. My God, I don't remember how long this movie was. This thing just stretched. And stretched. And stretched. But we're done stretching the end of this episode. So, Boo, any last words? Good evening. Have a good week, everybody. Bye.